This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Michael Walker and I have two great guests for you this evening. For the first half of the show, I'm joined by Omar Badar, a Palestinian-American political analyst based in Washington, D.C. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Omar. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm sure you've had a very busy couple of months, so we appreciate it. Of course. Glad to be on with you. In the second half of the show, I'll be speaking to Mike Bancole, who you know from previous shows. Can't wait to hear um, what he's got to say about a couple of stories we'll be doing at the end of the show. Um, one from Gaza and then also um, George Monbiot on Question Time talking about you know, the train wreck essentially, that is the government's Rwanda plan. Straight into our first story. We are reaching a point of no return in Gaza where the blatant disregard for international humanitarian law scars our collective conscience. Those were the words today from the head of the United Nations Agency for Palestinian Refugees. The most chilling consequence of that disregard for humanitarian law remains the number of children who have been killed in this war. The death toll of Gazan children stands at 7,112, 7,112. But it's the treatment of adult men which has come under particular scrutiny over the last 48 hours. This was a report last night from the BBC's Jeremy Bowen. Video emerged this afternoon of Palestinian men taken for interrogation. BBC staff recognised the town of Betlachia in northern Gaza and we've geolocated the video there too. Palestinian diplomats said these were savage images, evoking humanity's darkest times. The Israeli army said only that suspects were being interrogated. Posts on social media said the men had been sheltering with their families at a UN school and that others were killed during the Israeli raid. In this photo, the men have been moved to another location which we have not been able to verify. One of the captives, Dia Al-Khalut, is a journalist. He was forced to leave his disabled daughter, according to the newspaper he works for in London. Earlier at Israel's parliament, a prominent government supporter told me that only Israeli forces can control Gaza, not the independent Palestine the Americans want. I think that when we talk about uh, two-state solutions, we are solution, we are um, using three words and three lies. It's not two, it's not a state, it's definitely not a solution. So what's the answer, an everlasting occupation? First, occupation is not the word. You cannot be, you cannot, one cannot occupy its own land. Israel is not an occupier in Israel because that that's in, the land of Israel. So what about Gaza? Again. That's the land of Israel? Land of Israel, you cannot be occupying it. We're not occupying it from anyone. Now, it's welcome the mainstream media are finally waking up to the belligerent extremism of the Israeli political establishment. And that extremism has been on full display today. Arya King is the deputy mayor of Jerusalem. He shared a photo of the detained, stripped men you saw um, in that segment and tweeted this. IDF Online eliminates the Muslim Nazis in Gaza. We have to pick up the pace. If I had made the decisions, I would have jumped 4D9, so that's bulldozers, and put them behind the mounds of dirt and given the order to cover all these hundreds of ants while they were still alive. They are not human beings and not human animals. They are subhuman, and that is how they should be treated to protest the memory of Amalek. We will not forget. You'll remember from previous shows, Amalek um, is the enemy of Israelites or the, the enemy of Jews who should be destroyed every man, woman, and child. And um, that tweet has now been 
deleted. Um, the BBC has also had some more details about what actually happened to the detained men in those videos. So this is from the BBC. I've spoken to a 22-year-old Palestinian who was one of the dozens of men detained by the IDF in northern Gaza on Thursday. Footage of the detentions has gone viral on social media. He has asked to remain anonymous. And this is a quote from um, the detainee. Um, they, the IDF, forced us to sit in the middle of the street for almost three hours. Then trucks came. They handcuffed and blindfolded us, and they took us to an unknown place, he, he told me by phone. When they arrived at the location, he said they were randomly selected for questioning and interrogated about their relationship with Hamas. He said the place that he, his father, brother, and five cousins were taken to was sandy, and that they were left almost naked but given a blanket at night. After the questioning, he was taken to an unknown location and simply told to go home, he said, arriving back at about 1.40 in the morning. They released all of us except my father and eldest cousin. My father works for UNRWAS, that's a UN refugee agency. I don't know why they took him, he said. We walked barefoot down the street in the dark with the roads full of rocks and glass. Now, obviously, Israel is saying that this operation, as they like to call it, I mean, a war of extermination is what Norman Finkelstein called it earlier in the week um, when he was on this show. Um, but if you are going to take them at their word that what they're trying to do is take out Hamas and then reinstate some kind of stability in, in Gaza afterwards. Now, I can't imagine a set of circumstances that is more likely to create some kind of successor to Hamas than gathering all um, young men in the whole territory and taking them out into the desert in the middle of the night and making them walk home barefoot after having stripped them almost naked. It's just, it's, which, I, which is, to be honest, why I'm so worried, because it does seem like they must then have a different intention, right? Otherwise, they wouldn't be doing this. Um, let's go back to that Jeremy Bowen report. In Gaza, civilians are lost in the rubble of Israeli strikes. So far, the world is not close to controlling the powerful chaotic forces unleashed by this war. The UN Secretary General saying international peace and security is in jeopardy is demanding an immediate ceasefire. A Palestinian leader told me that the US and UK must not veto the next ceasefire resolution. The United States of America and Britain now has the key. If they oppose a resolution about immediate ceasefire, they will not be complicit only with this aggression. They will be a participant in these war crimes. They have to approve the ceasefire immediately because what is at stake is the life of 2.3 million people now. Half of them are children. Without a political solution, this conflict will go on when, if, Israel declares victory in Gaza. The war will not have a neat ending. Two opposing forces are at work here. On the one hand, pressure for a ceasefire. On the other, the determination of the Americans and the British to give Israel the time it needs to achieve its objectives. And one Western diplomat I talked to was thinking about perhaps another month. Now, the UN Secretary General wants to hurry that process up by putting pressure on them and also shaming them into taking action sooner. As Gaza's food queues get longer, the UN says it cannot run a dependable humanitarian operation. With hungry people jumping warehouse fences, Israel says world peace requires Gaza's liberation from Hamas and that will take force.
Now, earlier in that clip, you saw Mustafa Barghouti talking about the moral imperative for the US and UK to back a resolution for a ceasefire at the United Nations. Now, that resolution is being debated as we speak, um, but the Americans have already indicated they will use their veto. It's not yet clear how the UK will vote. Sometimes they abstain on this kind of thing instead of vetoing like the United States. But Foreign Secretary David Cameron has said the UK still opposes a ceasefire. Um, Omar, I want your thoughts on this. According to Jeremy Bowen there, the US and UK want to allow this war to continue for another month. So another month of what we're seeing at least. I mean, how would you respond to that? It is complete and utter lunacy to continue down the same path, seeing where it has led so far. I mean, there really is only one explanation for why somebody would back this genocidal war. You have to believe that the lives of Israelis matter more than the lives of Palestinians period, the end. There is no other explanation. The idea is Palestinians have to endure as they had before October 7th, one Israeli massacre after another, in which thousands of Palestinian civilians have been killed, hundreds of them children. And nobody would ever imagine that that gives Palestinians justification to just go and obliterate Israeli cities. But the second there is an atrocity that is committed on the Israeli side, suddenly that becomes justification for Israel to just go on this rampage that is utterly destroying the Palestinian civilian population in Gaza with the endorsement of the United States and, and many Western governments. It is, it is pure racism and really absolutely nothing else. And we have to also cut the sly out of pretending that Israel is trying to target Hamas and is essentially harming Palestinian civilians by accident. It is incredibly clear that the intention of this Israeli onslaught is the harm of the civilian population in Gaza. We've seen it revealed in strategic documents by the investigation in 972 magazine that suggested that Israel wanted to create a shock by destroying Palestinian civil society in Gaza in order to produce pressure on Hamas. We've seen it with the pronouncement of Israeli leaders that do sound genocidal and policies of cutting off water and electricity and food to all of Gaza and in these indiscriminate bombings that are documented by every major human rights organization that are absolutely clear about the fact that Israel has no intention to distinguish between military and civilian targets when they engage in these massive bombing campaigns that produce hundreds upon hundreds of dead civilians with every strike. And in the case of one day last week, killing more than 700 Palestinians in a single day, this is genocidal violence. And every government that insists on going along with it, or even remaining silent about it, let alone governments like the US giving bombs to arm it and fund it, are absolutely complicit in a crime that history will not judge kindly. Yeah, we've been talking a lot on this show about how open um, the Israelis have been with their sort of genocidal intent in this war. Um, but the Americans still don't seem to want to admit that. US Secretary of State Antony Blinken um, has very recently expressed concern about civilian casualties in Gaza. As we stand here almost a week into this campaign in the, the South after the end of the humanitarian uh, pause. It is imperative, it remains imperative, that Israel put a premium on civilian protection. And there does remain a gap between exactly what, what I said when I was there, the intent to protect civilians, and the actual results that we're seeing uh, on the ground. So that was Blinken trying to put, I suppose, a, a civilized face on the US government position. We really do want them to protect civilians. But he's given an incredibly misleading statement. His suggestion is that Israel's intent is good, but the outcomes are undesirable. There is a gap between their intentions and what they are actually doing. What he ignores, as we've just said, is that the stated intent of Israel is in fact genocidal. We've shown you 
numerous examples of this from Israeli politicians over the past few weeks. And from today, this is a pretty terrifying, I think, clip of Israeli soldiers. So these are IDF troops deployed to Gaza. Um, what they're chanting is this. So they're chanting, I'm coming to occupy Gaza and beat Hezbollah. I stick by one mitzvah to wipe off the seed of Amalek. I left home behind me and won't come back until victory. We know our slogan, there are no uninvolved civilians. There are no uninvolved civilians. Um, so Amalek is a biblical reference to the enemies of Jews who, yeah, as I've described this already in this show, all must be wiped out, man, woman, and child. Um, Omar, I want your thoughts on what Anthony Blinken said there. I mean, basically, that, that's the line of the entire Biden administration. Do you think they believe what they say, or, or is this sort of active dishonesty on their part? It is absolute and complete dishonesty, willful dishonesty. They're engaging in what can only be described as gaslighting. This is almost the definition of gaslighting, that you have one party engaging in genocidal rhetoric and talking about wanting to obliterate civilians, proceeding to obliterate civilians, and then having the U.S. run interference for them to say that clearly their intention is to protect civilians, but this is not going exactly according to plan. I mean, frankly, they're taking the American population for fools. And... When you look at the fact that they have complicity in U.S. media coverage, largely, which are covering this, primarily portraying the Israeli government as the good protagonist, Hamas as the evil bad guys, and then maybe if they're trying to be conscientious towards Palestinians, portraying them as collateral damage and uh, innocent victims who are caught in the middle of this fighting. In spite of all of this gaslighting and dishonesty, you have a majority of Americans actually right now supporting a ceasefire because no amount of gaslighting can hide the extent of the horrific images that are emerging from Gaza, which is why they're destined to lose this as a public relations war. If they think that there is any kind of um, BS PR cover that they can put on top of these kinds of atrocities to get public support for them, that is destined to fail. And Michael, I just want to say one more thing about the prisoners that, you know, the pictures that you had showed earlier. It is critical to remember that these are overwhelmingly, almost certainly, if not all, civilians who are kidnapped. Uh, many headlines have run that this is Hamas surrendering by huge numbers, which is complete and utter nonsense. And you have something even worse unfolding in the West Bank, where Palestinians are being rounded up by the thousands, thrown in Israeli military detention without charge or trial, brutalized in detention. And we've had six of them already, quote unquote, died in detention, almost certainly beaten to death, given the fact that there are many um, eyewitnesses who are saying that the extent of the br brutal beatings that are taking place um, has been really off the charts, and, and at least one eyewitness um, has conveyed the fact that one person has died in custody from being beaten to death. This is the army that we're dealing with. It's an army with an extremely lengthy history of absolutely horrific war crimes. Um, the list of atrocities is extremely extensive. They are caught on video in the West Bank, where nobody claims there's a Hamas stronghold or a military base or any of that nonsense killing children on video who clearly posed absolutely no threat to anyone in Janine, an eight-year-old and a 15-year-old, and we they get away with it with minimal coverage and attention. Um, this is an absolutely horrific situation that I think nobody, no, no person of conscience should stand for, and we ought to raise our voices much more aggressively to demand an end to this absolutely disgusting and deplorable slaughter. This is not a moment in which history will judge kindly anyone who stood on the sidelines in the face of atrocities of this scale. Do you have any idea of what the U.S. game plan actually is? You know, because it, you know, it, there's such a distance between their language and the reality that I feel like, you know, 
that this must come into some sort of crisis or conflict at some point. They can't just keep saying, oh, we are backing an Israeli government that's really trying to protect civilians and is just trying to take out a, a terrorist organization and then reinstate some form of stable, non-terrorist government. I mean, that's the official position of the Americans. But it's so far from what the Israelis are planning. And even if that is what the Israelis were planning, it's not going to work, right? It's not the case that you can just take out Hamas and then suddenly everyone's going to be like, oh yeah, let's have this Let's have this society which is completely subservient to Israel who have just killed, shed loads of our family members. Like, it doesn't make sense. And that does make me think, what what are the Americans thinking? I know from, from the Israeli side, they don't mind the chaos because they think, well, the more chaotic it gets, the more likely we can have our actual desired option, which is to kick everyone out. But the Americans exactly. don't seem to want everyone to be kicked out in part because that would destabilize Egypt. So I don't know, I, I don't understand what game they're playing. And I wonder if you have sort of any insight as to what it could be. No, I, I think we have a deeply broken political system in the United States where a lot of the stuff is influenced by domestic American politics more than it is by the actual foreign policy. Uh, in the case of foreign policy, I believe that the Biden administration is quietly trying to press Netanyahu to do more to protect civilians and to change their approach to this war. But ultimately, Netanyahu can just kick sand in their face and say, we don't care what you're saying, because they know that the Biden administration is not going to pick a fight with the Israel lobby, with uh, Republicans in Congress who have lined up to defend Israeli conduct and engage in even more genocidal rhetoric than the Israelis themselves on the Republican side here, talking about the need to uh, flatten all of Gaza, talking about describing all Palestinians as Nazis. The rhetoric coming out of the Republican Party in the United States has been absolutely horrific and anti-Palestinian to a degree that I had never witnessed in this country before. And then you add on top of that a huge portion of Democrats in, in the U.S. Congress and the Senate who are also backed by AIPAC and who will go to bat for Israel and stand against the Biden administration. And we have a situation where Biden basically is caught between a rock and a hard place domestically, where clearly the majority of people want a ceasefire. Uh, a significant portion of the Democratic base is appalled by U.S. support for Israeli crimes, but yet to oppose them in a real way, applying meaningful pressure by withholding U.S. military funding for Israel would immediately create a political crisis um, with Congress and with the Israel lobby that is also something that Biden is trying to avoid. They have historically always erred on the side of siding with special interests against the broader population and the base on a broad range of issues. Um, but this is shaping up to be a little bit different because the extent of the outrage for U.S. backing of these of these monstrous atrocities um, is reaching a boiling point, and it is unclear uh, what decision the Biden administration will ultimately make on whether they're willing to put their foot down or not. Unfortunately, so far, it's been clear that they have not been willing to apply meaningful pressure beyond just quiet rhetoric of calling for fewer civilian casualties and more to be done. Um, but we'll we'll see how the coming few weeks play out and whether that actually ends up changing or not. Yeah, this is one of the things that frustrates me most about sort of politicians on both sides of the Atlantic. I mean, obviously, they're a lot more impactful when it comes to the Americans and the Brits, but everyone in every major party in the UK says, oh, no, of course we're against the settlements. Of course we would be against the expulsion of people from Gaza. But no, it would be completely anti-Semitic to do anything that would stop Israel doing that. So a boycott, sanctions, that would be anti-Semitic. So what we're going to do is say we would like them to behave in a different way, but enable them to behave in whatever way they want, which is what we are doing and why the governments of the UK and the US are essentially complicit in what is looking a lot like a genocide. Let's go to our next story. I'm going to keep Omar with me for this one. We're going to talk about the death of a distinguished poet in the last day or so. Rafat al-Arir, a well-known Palestinian writer, poet, and professor of English literature, has been killed by the IDF. 
he died along with his sister, his brother-in-law, and their children in an airstrike in the northern Gazan house where they were living. Rafat had been a widely followed commentator speaking from within Gaza throughout the war. This is footage of him on a live stream two months ago. We know that it's very bleak, it's very dark. Uh, there's no way out. Uh, if, if there's no water, there is no uh, way out of Gaza. What, what should we do? Like, drown? Like, commit mass suicide? Is this what Israel wants? And we're not going to do that. And I was telling some somebody, some friend the other day that I am an academic. I Probably the toughest thing I have at, at home is an expo marker. But if the Israelis invade, if they charge at us, charge at us, open door to door to massacre us, I'm going to use that marker, throw it at the Israeli soldiers, even if that is the last thing that I would be able to do. And this is the feeling of everybody. We are helpless. We have nothing to lose. Rafat dedicated his life to teaching and to documenting the Palestinian experience, especially in Gaza, where he lived. This is part of a piece he wrote about his childhood there called Gaza Asks, When Shall This Pass? So he writes, As I grew into a proud stone thrower at the age of 12, the thing I feared most was my dad's wrath. He worked in Israel as a laborer, and if he had caught me throwing stones, he would have rebuked me. My dad was not heartless or abusive. He just knew that if the Israeli forces had caught me, he would have lost his work permit. I survived the first intifada, that's 1987 to 93, in which Israel killed over 1,600 Palestinians and injured thousands. I was lucky I escaped Israel's bullets and Yitzhak Rabin's broken bones policy. That was not true of my friend Liwa Bakrun, then 13, who was chased by an Israeli settler who shot him dead from point-blank rage in front of his classmates. The Israeli settler did not want to punish Liva for throwing stones, for Lewa did not throw stones. The settler wanted to teach those who threw stones a lesson by killing a kid in front of the eyes of scores of little scared kids going back home from school and a few meters away from Lewa's home. His mother's shrieks still ring in my ears. More recently, Rafat wrote this poem. It was posted to his Twitter seven days before he was killed. If I must die, let it be a tale, it's called. If I must die, you must live to tell my story, to sell my things, to buy a piece of cloth and some strings, make it white with a long tail, so that a child somewhere in Gaza, while looking heaven in the eye, awaiting his dad who left in a blaze and bid no one farewell, not even to his flesh, not even to himself, sees the kite, my kite you made, flying up above, and thinks for a moment an angel is there bringing back love. If I must die, let it bring hope, let it be a tale. Now, that poem has been read millions of times, I think, today on social media. Haymarket Books is giving the volume of Palestinian writing containing the first piece um, I showed you away for free if you want to read more. It's called Light in Gaza. Now, you might be wondering why we're just focusing on one person who now lies dead amongst more than 17,000 other Palestinians killed in Gaza. Every one of those deaths is, of course, a tragedy. And the number killed in such a short time does indicate to many the genocidal nature of this war. But genocide isn't just about killing a group of people. It's also about erasing their culture, their history and their art, as well as the people who make that culture and disseminate it. After all, settler colonialism gets difficult when there are too many reminders of the humanity of the people you're ethnically cleansing. 
artists, poets, and writers like Rafat get in the way of that, as do the places they work in and the institutions they build. Rafat taught at the Islamic University of Gaza. It was destroyed in an Israeli air raid on October the 11th, a fact that was only made clear during the week-long truce at the end of November. Also targeted by Israel was the Mekdad Printing Press and Library, amongst the oldest in Gaza. In late November, Mekdad posted this, A dream and 30 years of effort. They burned it and ended it. Mikdad Printing Press and Library, one of the oldest printing presses in Gaza. The Israeli bombing led to its complete end. Millions in losses as a result of the bombing and burning of printing machines, equipment, books and supplies. My whole family, my mother, father and brothers have a hand in this effort. They finished it in an instant. My father went back to pre-zero. Then there are the libraries. Gaza's central archive and library was also bombed by Israel. Thousands of historical documents are thought to have been destroyed in the bombardment. The archive contained handwritten material from important figures in Palestinian history, as well as land deeds and building designs, some over 100 years old. Bissan Auda, a journalist based in Gaza, posted her reaction to that destruction on Instagram. Today, Gaza municipality said that the Israeli war plans bombed and destroyed the central archive building that contained thousands of documents uh, aged more than 100 years. Yani, they, they know actually what, what they are bombing. They do this intentionally. And now literally, we don't have anything. The future is unknown, the present is destroyed, and the past is not is no longer our past. We don't know now anything about our city. And I used to make Hakawatiyir, the storyteller program. And I used to talk in dozens of episodes about Gaza and the history of Gaza. And everything about Gaza. And now they destroyed this place. Oh my God. How, how, how evil are they? How monsters are they? I, 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 are they? I, I yani, can you imagine that they are doing all these things to destroy the depth of us. Yani, gahar. What does it mean, gahar? Gahar is to make someone so sad. I don't know what does it mean in English. I don't know. But they're trying to gahar us. I don't know. They're destroying our, our, our city, our lives forever. Like forever. Just this. And by the way, today is the 29th of, of, of November. It's the international day to solidarity with, uh, of solidarity to, with, with the Palestinian people. And we're under, uh, under bombing. The last day of the truce. It's not extended anymore. Incredible day. Since sharing that video, Bissan Alda has said that her house has been bombed. She posted a photo on Instagram with this message. This is me and my cats in my home in Gaza City. The home was bombed and destroyed yesterday. I don't know where are my free kittens in Gaza City is destroyed. This is our lives in Gaza Strip right now, a non-stop nightmare. We lost everything. According to reports, Gaza's main public library lies in ruins too. Now, you may not know this, but any book shipped to Gaza has to pass through Israel first. Post can be halted at any time, parcels withheld. So it's not easy to build a library when you're under occupation. Monuments to historical figures have also been destroyed. In Janine, in the occupied West Bank, a shrine was erected in honor of Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abu Akla, murdered by an IDF gunman. This is what's left of it after an IDF operation early in the morning 
of October the 26th. The International Federation of Journalists has called on the International Criminal Court to investigate Abu Akla's murder. Also in the West Bank, this happened. So on November the 14th, an Israeli bulldozer destroyed the statue erected in memory of the founder of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, Yasser Arafat, in Tulkam. That's the Palestinian leader who signed the historic 1995 Oslo Accords, agreeing to a two-state solution and self-determination for the Palestinians. Just rubble now. Cultural property, libraries, archives, monuments are protected under the 1954 Hague Convention. And according to the ICC, willful attacks on cultural heritage are a criminal violation of the Rome Statute, prosecutable in the International Criminal Court. Of course, though, Israel, like the United States, is not a member of that organization. Now, there has, over the past 24 hours, been an enormous outpouring of mourning for Rafiq al-Arir. But not everyone is joining in. Quote tweeting one writer's message about um, Rafiq. The editor of the Jewish Chronicle posted this screenshot. So you've got Adam Horowitz there sort of talking um, about the death of Rafat. And then you have Jake Wallace-Simons, who seems to be doing a sort of gotcha where he's quote tweeting a tweet from Rafat which says, with or without baking powder, in reference to a story about a baby found in an oven. Now, this has gone viral on Twitter today as sort of evidence that Rafat thinks it's funny that babies are put in ovens. But clearly, that's actually a joke because the story wasn't true. We know it wasn't true. We've talked about this on previous shows. There was one baby that was killed on October the 7th. One baby dying is a tragedy enough, but there was no babies in ovens. This story was not true. So he was mocking a fake story, not celebrating the death of a baby. And everyone using this as a gotcha on the day or the day after he's died, I find pretty repulsive. Um, Omar, I want to ask you about sort of the significance of of the death of this or the killing of this distinguished poet. I did not have uh, the honor of actually knowing him directly, but we do know each other exclusively on social media uh, from following each other and retweeting each other and, and, and so on. And there's no question that he was uh, an invaluable voice, that he's connected to many people here in the United States. Endless friends who have family in Gaza have actually met with him personally, uh, describe him as a teacher, and his contributions in terms of shedding light and the power of his words and his poetry, um, he is incredibly significant, and his killing is essentially an extension of a long campaign, as you mentioned, of Israel trying to wipe out every expression of Palestinian identity that resonates with the outside world. And it's part of the project that began, frankly, in 1948 and never stopped. When Israel was created as a state, um, there was this mythology of a land without a people for a people without a land. And in order to make that a reality, in spite of Israel driving out more than 700,000 Palestinians out of their homes at the time to create a Jewish state and committing many, many massacres, is the literal erasure of hundreds of Palestinian towns and villages, about 600 of them, um, in order to obliterate any record of the fact that Palestinians existed in this place before, we know how the story ends. We know that if Israel is allowed to continue down that path, it will not be very different from what happened in a place like the United States to Native Americans, where they are now confined to small reservations, um, where there are many museums commemorating the atrocities committed against them, but we have an opportunity for an intervention before that happens in Palestine and Israel right now. We have an opportunity to stop this ongoing genocide, to stop the erasure of the indigenous population in Palestine. And that requires us to act with the kind of courage that we pretend we would have had with historical events. We talk about earlier genocides in the world. We talk about 
slavery. We talk about colonialism. We talk about so many things as if, oh, yes, that was a shameful part of history. If it were, if it were to happen again, of course, we would act differently. We would, we would raise our voices. Well, it is unfolding right now as we speak. We have an unbearable injustice being imposed on Palestinians, denying them their freedom, and basically saying, if you try to resist a life without freedom, then we're going to obliterate you from existence. And we're watching that unfolding as we speak. It really is an opportunity to intervene. This is a where were you moment in history. And we should be able to tell future generations that when this moment came, we raised our voices and did absolutely everything we could to stop an unspeakable atrocity from being committed against Palestinians. And frankly, even if you don't care about Palestinians and only care about the security and freedom of Israelis, we've seen that this path of trying to pummel Palestinians into submission has led to nothing but more and more violence. And even if you're just concerned about Israeli safety, that also should be adequate motivation for you to be fighting for a just solution in which Palestinians get to live free and exist with human rights on their own land, because that is ultimately the only way we're going to achieve a better future for both Israelis and Palestinians. Palestinians have to be free and we have to demand it. We have one more story about the Gaza war and then we're going to move on to talk about George Monbiot on Question Time, sort of domestic story there. So let's get straight into it. Since October the 7th, Israel has bombed Gaza with historic intensity. In the first two months of its campaign, Israel says it has conducted 10,000 airstrikes. That's one airstrike for every 220 Palestinians living in the territory. And according to researchers at Cooney Graduate Center and the University of Oregon, more than 60% of buildings in northern Gaza have been severely damaged. In some areas, that rises to 70%. Across the whole of Gaza, up to 105,000 buildings have been destroyed. Homes, mosques, churches, health centers, and schools obliterated. We can compare that level of bombing to the campaigns waged against German cities by Allied forces in World War II. This graph is from the Financial Times. At the high end, estimates for the proportion of buildings more than 50% damaged in Gaza stands at 68%. If that's right, it's more than the 59% of buildings that were destroyed in Dresden and the 61% bombed in Cologne. Only Hamburg suffered higher damage at 75%. This level of destruction has only been made possible by Israel's sophisticated weapons cache, largely furnished by Western arms manufacturers. Israel doesn't reveal the nature of its weapons, but explosive analysts working for the Financial Times have identified many of its arms by analysing photographs released by the IDF on a daily basis. Some of those weapons are relatively precise. This helicopter is firing a Hellfire missile made by US arms firm Lockheed Martin. These laser-guided explosives were used by the US against ISIS militants in Iraq and Syria. Israel has used them in densely populated Gaza. Also being used are so-called fire-and-forget spike missiles. They're developed by an Israeli arms firm and are locked onto a target before being fired. Hence, you can forget them after they have been fired. But Israel is also using much heavier unguided explosives. So the M117 bomb being detonated here is an unguided weapon dropped from a plane. It weighs 750 pounds. It was developed by the US military and has been in use since the Korean War in the 1950s. Now, the FT's military analysts suspect they're falling on Gaza too. But the heaviest weapon in Israel's arsenal is the 2,000-pound GBU-31 bomb. This footage is from Afghanistan in 2012 and shows two of these bombs exploding. Really no How far is it? Oh, my God. 
Everything oh, is gone. God. I can't even zoom out any farther. There's nobody in there. <laughs> That's the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. That's what Israel has burn sorry. That's what Israel has reportedly been dropping on Gaza. Developed by US arms manufacturer Boeing, GBU-31 bombs are four times larger than the biggest weapons the US used on the Iraqi city of Mosul. Combined with global positioning systems that turns them into JDAMs, that's joint direct attack munitions, their force is immense. And Israel hasn't been using them sparingly. Former Pentagon military analyst Mark Garlasco told the Financial Times this about the bomb's effects. Buildings pancake. Their support disintegrates, so they collapse in on themselves. And then there are the area effects, including the secondary fragmentation of cement, metal, people's cell phones, and everything else that flies out from the explosion at supersonic speeds. The only reason I can think of why they have been used is that the IDF has been trying to collapse Hamas's tunnel network. What is remarkable, though, is their widespread use. So that's pretty terrifying. You know, They are trying to destroy what's under the ground, and if it's going to reach what's under the ground, they're going to destroy... Yeah, a hell of a lot of what's on the ground, right? <laughs> if, if you're trying to damage a tunnel, you're going to damage the building to a much greater extent than whatever is under it. Blast survivors have described the bomb's force as making it feel like they were, quote, surfing liquid earth. And earlier this week, Amnesty released this investigation. They found that US-made JDAM bombs killed 43 civilians in two Israeli airstrikes and have called for the attacks to be investigated as war crimes. And that's only what Amnesty has been able to investigate. As no journalists or investigators are allowed into Gaza, it could be months until we find out the full extent of the munitions they used, if ever, of course. And there's another aspect of Israel's bombing campaign which is clouded in secrecy, how they decide where to drop their bombs. But an investigation by left-wing Israeli magazine 972 has spoken to sources who have given us at least some idea. Based on conversations with seven current and former Israeli intelligence officers, 972 reports this. Compared to previous Israeli assaults on Gaza, the current war, which Israel has named Operation Iron Swords and which began um, in the wake of the attacks on October 7th, has seen the army significantly expand its bombing of targets that are not distinctly military in nature. These include private residences as well as public buildings, infrastructure and high-rise blocks, which sources say the army defines as power targets. The bombing of power targets, according to intelligence sources who had first-hand experience with its application in Gaza in the past, is mainly intended to harm Palestinian civil society, to create a shock that, among other things, will reverberate powerfully and lead civilians to put pressure on Hamas, as one source put it. That sounds a lot like collective punishment. One source 2972 said this, Nothing happens by accident. When a three-year-old girl is killed in a home in Gaza, it's because someone in the army decided it wasn't a big deal for her to be killed. That is, was that it was a price worth paying in order to hit another target. We are not Hamas. These are not random rockets. Everything is intentional. We know exactly how much collateral damage there is in every home. A second source who took part in previous offences in Gaza told 972 this, we are asked to look for high-rise buildings with half a floor that can be attributed to Hamas. Sometimes it is a militant group's spokesperson's office or a point where operatives meet. I understood that the floor is an excuse that allows the army to cause a lot of destruction in Gaza. That is what they told us. If they would tell the whole world that the Islamic Jihad offices on the 10th floor are not important as a target, but that its existence is a justification to bring down the entire high-rise with the aim of pressuring civilian families who live in it in order to put pressure on terrorist organizations, this would itself be seen as terrorism. So they do not say it. 
Israel has, of course, bombed Gaza many times before, but it's never attacked with the ferocity we're seeing in this bombardment. In 2021, the IDF attacked 1,500 targets in 11 days. In 2014, around 6,000 targets were bombed over 51 days. But in the current assault, 15,000 targets were destroyed in just the first 35 days of the war. So why are there so many more so-called targets now than there have been in previous bombardments? Now, the answer may be that Israel is using a target-generating AI system called Habsura. Now, that means the gospel in Hebrew. It's capable of producing up to 100 targets per day. The 972 investigation reports this. Habsura, explained one of the sources, processes enormous amounts of data that tens of thousands of intelligence officers could not process and recommends bombing sites in real time. Because most senior Hamas officials head into underground tunnels with the start of any military operation, the sources say, the use of a system like Habsura makes it possible to locate and attack the homes of relatively junior operatives. One former intelligence officer explained that the Habsura system enables the army to run a mass assassination factory in which the emphasis is on quantity and not on quality. A human eye will go over the targets before each attack, but it need not spend a lot of time on them. Since Israel estimates that there are approximately 30,000 Hamas members in Gaza, and they are all marked for death, the number of potential targets is enormous. The number of potential targets may be enormous. But so too are the number of civilians being caught up in the carnage. 16 and a half thousand Palestinians have been killed in Gaza in the last two months. 7,000 of them children, according to the health ministry. Only a fraction of them, between one and 3,000, according to the Israeli military, I think they're now saying 5,000, but I don't really believe that, have been armed Hamas fighters. This Financial Times report sort of stunned a lot of people with those comparisons between um, Gaza and Dresden, because Dresden is often sort of put forward as, you know, the dark side of the Allied forces war in the Second World War. So, you know, it's, it's not obvious. It's, it, it's very obvious what side to take in that battle. That was one of the few wars where we can say, yes, that was a just war, right? The Allies had to do everything they could to beat the Nazis. But many military historians and um, sort of lawyers of international law think that probably the mass bombing of Dresden and the mass killing of civilians might not have been necessary. And therefore, retrospectively, they've drawn up you know, the, the legal sort of parameters of war so that Dresden doesn't happen again. But Israel is doing Dresden plus, 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 because Dresden was over quite a long period of time that we were bombing that city. This has been a few weeks and you're seeing more damage than you ever saw then. I mean, how do you respond to that? Yeah, I mean, Michael, you read out some stats earlier, you know, nearly 17,000 Palestinians have been killed, you know, 7,000 of these are children. These are horrific stats, you know, also 85% of the population in Gaza have been displaced. Nine in 10 people have access to inadequate food. So this is this is a dark situation. And the problem we have here is the liberal consensus is to assume Israel is acting in good faith. So Israel is acting in its defense, right? Israel has a right to defend itself. We've heard this phrase said time and time again. But this is not about defending itself. This is about the indiscriminate targeting of civilians. Yeah, we've seen this when you read Vito's stats, like Michael. These are horrific stats. And I think ultimately what we need in this moment is principled politicians in the West acting you know, with courage and with compassion. You know, these are people who are suffering. I've been struck on, on, on social media, seeing so many influential Palestinians essentially tweets their last words. You've seen horrible scenes in Gaza, day in and day out, and we should not be numb to this. You know, and I think, you know, 
people on the left who've done a really amazing job in terms of turnout to the streets in large numbers and people, not just on the left, people in general with compassion have turned out in large numbers to these protests. And I think it's important we continue to put pressure on governments in the West because the kind of liberal consensus that assumes that Israel's acting in good faith is completely ridiculous. Israel's not acting in good faith at the moment. Israel is quite literally targeting civilians in Gaza indiscriminately. It's a war crime and your people, you know, leaders who claim to espouse these kind of liberal values as of human rights and protecting civilians, should be speaking out against this. And, 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 you know, what they say often is, as you mentioned earlier, Michael, is there seems to be a disconnect between what they say and what they do. So it's like, oh, you know, we want to, you know, protect Palestinians. Of course we care about their lives, but then they do nothing about it. So I think it's important for these leaders who espouse these liberal values to actually stand by them and act on them. There are so many bombs that are clearly not targeted that they're using, right? They want to destroy the tunnels from above. But that just means destroying Gaza, right? It's, it's a bit like if um, someone said they wanted to destroy London's sewage system. So you say, oh, we, we, we want to destroy London's sewage system. We're going to try not to kill Londoners, um, but they can't really escape because in Gaza, there's a fence, a literal fence around it, right? And then they say, oh, yeah, we bombed this, terrorist, this, this road of terrorist houses and we bombed this um, council estate because we needed a bomb so powerful that it would collapse the sewage system under London. It, it's not the kind of war aim that should be acceptable because it's going to cause the complete destruction of of a city. I mean, Gaza City is already destroyed. Um, so yeah, the idea that that can possibly be targeted when you're using bombs that are specifically intentionally so powerful, they will collapse what's underground, um, I think is pretty appalling. Um, any more thoughts on this one before we move to our final story? No more thoughts, really. I just, I just hope that, you know, we do see a shift in the stance, especially from the US and the UK. I think they are, Biden and Sunak are two quite powerful players in this game. Will we see the shift? I doubt it. I don't think we will see the shift. I think we're more likely to see a shift in the US, to be fair. I think Biden and the kind of voices around Biden are starting to kind of shift ever so slightly as this gets worse and worse. Maybe in the UK we might see a slight shift, but I doubt it. But I think it is important that those two nations, US and the UK, shift completely rhetorically and also in terms of how they view Israel. Israel is not acting in good faith and that needs to be acknowledged. Let's go to our final story of the evening and our final story of the week, I suppose. The chaos surrounding the government's Rwanda policy has been embarrassing to watch, but Johnny Mercer had a shot at defending it on BBC Question Time. This is clearly an issue of debate in the Conservative Party. Nobody's running away from that at all. Um, and uh, obviously the immigration minister resigned yesterday because you know he wanted to go further. He wanted to withdraw from uh, European human rights law completely. And, that's and he thinks not, he hasn't got a chance of getting through? I'm sorry? He thinks he hasn't got a chance of, that's of succeeding? That's fine, and that's up to him. But the Prime Minister's dealing with lots of other narratives in this space as well, like Miranda, who say, actually, if you leave that, this policy is going to fail. Uh, and there's no point even starting down this road. So it's all a balance. We all want more things in politics. And I've found that myself when I've been campaigning for veterans and veterans who've been prosecuted in Northern Ireland and things like that. I've always wanted more. But the art of it, actually, is being able to come together to unite around what is deliverable in, in the world as it is, not as we would want it to be, but as it is, and actually delivering something for hardworking, ordinary men and women up and down this country who see the unfairness of illegal migration. So deporting a few hundred desperate people to Rwanda will re-establish fairness for ordinary Britons. I don't buy it. And neither did Guardian columnist and author George Monbiot. Of all the hills to die on, this has got to be the most ridiculous. I mean, it's just absurd. The whole point of the Rwanda policy is not to try to solve anything. It's to performatively beat up some of the most vulnerable and traumatised people on earth in order to distract attention. 
to distract attention from the government's own failures. And Johnny says, this is giving the working people of this country something. The only thing this is giving the working people of this country is to show them that somebody else is worse off than they are, because that somebody is being performatively beaten up by the government. That's the point of the policy. And we have this ridiculous new bill, which is the first one I've ever seen, which tries to legislate the nature of reality. It says, we will legislate that Rwanda is a safe country. Regardless of whether Rwanda is or is not a safe country, we will put it in the law that it is a safe country. You might as well have a bill which legislates that the moon is made of green cheese. <laughs> we have reached the point now, after 13 years of these fiascos, of total absurdity. They, they're not even intending to put this into implementation. They don't intend to make this a viable policy. They're just desperately throwing up clouds of dust in order to distract from the absolute catastrophe that this government has become for the great majority of the people of this country. I agree with every word George Monbiot said there, and it's for this reason, right? The Rwanda plan is not going to work. And that's not just because it's being blocked by the courts. It's not just because it's pretty ridiculous to say, well, the court said Rwanda's not safe, so we're just going to make a new law which says Rwanda is safe. It's, I think it's actually called the, the, the safety of Rwanda bill. You know, it's, it's almost like a joke, as if he was saying, yeah, you call the, the moon is made of cheese bill. You can't make something the truth by just saying it's the truth and then getting people to vote on that. But the reason I think it's, it's just a distraction is because even if the courts allowed it, even if it got up and running, if you send you know, a few hundred people to Rwanda, which has always been the numbers they've been talking about. It's never been the case that they've been saying, oh, well, if there's 50,000 people that cross the channel in a year, we'll send over 50,000 or 25,000 or 10,000. It's always been a very small number of people. And that will not work because people are already taking a very significant risk to cross the channel. Now, if they knew that that risk was not going to have, you know, any positive outcome, it wasn't going to be possible for them to um, claim asylum in the UK, um, then maybe they wouldn't take that risk. But if they think, oh, there's a 2% chance that I might get deported to Rwanda, who is going to have taken all of the risks to get from the country they are escaping to get to Britain and then say, oh, all of those risks, you know, potentially dying across the desert, potentially dying um, crossing the Mediterranean. But this this threat, this 2% threat that I might be, or this 2% risk that I might be deported to Rwanda, that's going to stop me. It's just nonsense, right? And anyone who sort of engages their brain knows this which is why I think George Monbiot is right. This is just a sort of, they wanted to create a fight, even though everyone knows this is going to have no effect on, on the reality. And let's watch a bit more of George Monbiot on this topic. And that would be a point of mere amusement for comfortable people like ourselves sitting behind this table. But it has real consequences for real people. And among those people are people who have already suffered appalling things, unspeakable things, and just desperately want refuge, a safe haven. And what do they get instead? They get a government of sadists deliberately beating them up in order to show how tough they are. We've got a decent round of applause for that. Mike, do you agree? Do we have a government of sadists? Absolutely. I think especially this version of the Conservative government are sadists. I mean, the, as you mentioned, the Rwanda plan will not work. And ultimately, the idea is a deterrent is not true because people aren't, you know, 
taking these risky routes to this country because they're thrill seekers. They're doing so because they have to. But if you know safe routes to the UK, unless people travel across dinghies or hang on to the back of lorries, people are risking their lives because they see the UK as their only hope. So this is not about people doing this because, you know, thrill seekers and, you know, they just want to do it for the fun of it. They have no safe routes. So Britain has a moral duty to provide safe routes to those seeking refuge and asylum. That's what Britain needs to do. And that's that would help, you know, stop some of the crossings that we see to Britain. These kind of, quote-unquote, these stop-the-boat crossings, they, they would stop if we had, you know, safe routes. So I think, you know, ultimately, it's all it's all just, you know, for a show. It's, it's all, you know, Sunak wants to be wants to look like he's been tough on migration because they've been tough on migration. But ultimately, this will not help things. This will not help stop the problem they want to stop, in inverted commas. I don't think they want to stop the problem. I think they want to be malicious. And I think... This goes back years and years. I think several governments, not just conservative governments, by the way, Labour governments, have formalised immigration policies that are just deeply malicious. I mean, the Blair governments did this, you know, with some of their refugee policies and some of the rhetoric. I remember David Bunkett, some of his rhetoric was, was horrible around asylum seekers. So what's happened is the kind of liberal consensus on immigration has been one of hostility and, and just nasty policies. And I think the conservative policies we're seeing in recent, recent years and, and a discourse has been quite a disgusting manifestation of that but i think this goes back years and years i think actually both parties have you know a lot of thinking to do when it comes to how they approach immigration because when it comes to efficiency when it comes to compassion both parties are found wanting and i think when it comes to conservative party they just take delight in being malicious at the moment we saw some of bradman's comments you know a couple of weeks ago about about homelessness these are people who take delight in being malicious yeah and and it seems like they they want to be malicious they want to offend particular groups in society often the most marginalized groups in society so i think this is a malicious government it's a government that takes delight in being malicious and ultimately it's a, a government that is fundamentally inefficient and will pay the price for that at the next general election. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be very interesting to see how Labour deal with this if they do win the next general election because they don't exactly have a sort of coherent proposal for what to do. The one thing that's sort of, you know, I suppose a, a consolation is I think that the Tories have an active interest in making the migration system as more dysfunctional than it needs to be. And I think Labour yeah. probably will not want it to actively dis- be dysfunctional because the Tories think that increasing the salience of migration is good for them. Labour think increasing the salience of migration is bad for them. So so I would imagine they don't want a system whereby there are tens of thousands of people spending months and months in hotels because they don't want that row. That doesn't mean, though, that they won't sort of follow the lead of the tabloid press as Tony Blair did, the Blair government, as you said. Um, you know, basically, if if they thought the right-wing tabloids were attacking them on the issue of asylum, they would create some new asylum law that made it harder to be an asylum seeker. So I think it was actually New Labour that banned asylum seekers from working while they were awaiting their claims, which is one of the reasons we had the problem now, which is that obviously people complain about, oh, these people being put up by the state. Well, if you're not going to let them work, what else are they going to do, right? Nearly all asylum seekers who come to this country, they want to start working. They don't want to be put up in a hotel um, by the taxpayer. What they want to do is get a job but because of New Labour, they aren't able to. And that was New Labour trying to shut down a critique from the tabloid press, which, guess what? Didn't work, right? They still attacked them. Um, final thoughts on this before we um, leave it for, for the evening, Mike. I think one thing we also need to think about is the experience of migrants who actually make it to the UK. Because because of this hostility and the rhetoric being used by the government, some migrants who are maybe have waiting for their claims to be processed or need to engage with the Home Office often might choose not to, partly because they're just worried about the hostility they might face engaging with the Home Office. So I think there is an unintended consequence in that it doesn't prevent people from crossing over. You know, people will also take these risky routes over to the UK. And those who have made made it to the UK, you know, 
will be reluctant to engage with the Home Office. And what happens then is, I, I work with a homeless charity at the moment. I noticed a lot of you know refugees and asylum seekers are homeless. There are, there are two reasons for this. Number one, the government don't provide enough of a safety net for those who actually make it to the UK in the first place. And number two is because you know people aren't engaged with the Home Office, you know, what happens is these people end up living in horrible conditions, you know, and, and, and there's, they, there's no real awareness of the situation. So I do think there is that unintended consequence that we need to speak about the people who actually do make it here and hostility they fear they're going to face. And this is why this, this, this government are saying this, right? They, they are inflicting untold harm on people. People who, by the way, some of these people who come to the UK or trying to come to the UK are escaping torture, harm, you know, real desperate situations. So this is what the government are doing. And this is why this is a deeply malicious government. Uh, yeah, I mean, I agree. I can't wait to see the back of them. Uh, Mike Bancali, it's been a pleasure having you back on. Yeah, it's been, been good to be back. The double mic combination back in action. <laughs> double mic back in action. Um, thank you guys at home for watching. Um, before you go, Navarra Media is only possible because of the donations we receive directly to us from all of you. So thanks um, to all of you who support us and keep this operation going. Um, right now, we're looking to find 5,000 more supporters. We're almost there, um, but we've got a little way to go. So if you do want to support us directly, and build people-powered media, then head to navarromedia.com slash support. Now, I used to always say forward slash, and people say you don't need to say forward slash anymore because nothing contains a backslash. I think it's like a, bo a boomer way of saying it. I don't know why I've got that. Um, anyway, thanks everyone for watching this evening. Come back on Monday for another live stream from 6pm. Also, I don't want to, I ended on a boomer slur. I'm so sorry. Um, for now, you've been watching Navarro Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.